right, everybody, well, welcome to Daniel this Sunday afternoon. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, turn with us back to where we left off last time, which would be, uh, we are at Daniel chapter 5. Papa just got back, as a, as a number of you did, Billy also from the uh, Black Mountain Weekend Retreat for the guys that Alan's been doing for, I don't know, at least 15 or more years. And I hear really good things about how it went. Papa gives the thumbs up. <laughs> uh, Billy drove Jerry, right, up and back. Uh, and thankfully, they didn't encounter any snow on the way, although there was some snow up there on the mountain on Saturday, is what I hear. But uh, we are thankful that those guys are making their way back. Uh, let's pray together, and then we will uh, we'll read the passage in pieces as we go and uh, talk about what it means and how we can apply it to our lives. Uh, Greg, can you open us in prayer? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you. Lord, for the book of Daniel, God, an ancient book that is inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, insufficient, and highly relevant, God, for, the, for the, the time we live in now. And we are so thankful for the gift of this book, uh, Lord, and what we have already been learning uh, just about your faithfulness and your sovereignty and, Lord, the importance of staying true to what we know to be true and to you and to how you would have us live. Uh, Lord, we pray for your help today, God, that up here on the, the panel, Lord, you just help us be clear, help us be able to think clearly, speak clearly, uh, to speak with conviction and yet with humility. God, because any gifting we have, any insight we have ultimately comes from you. And Lord, I pray for all of us, Lord, that we'd understand your word better. Uh, Lord, that we'd be able to draw near to you uh, and know you and live for you better because of this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just to, just to start us off here on a historical note about this passage, um, for a long part, for the majority of Christian history, uh, there was no external evidence from archaeology or from ancient history that a man named Belshazzar even existed or that he was king in any sense uh, in the Babylonian period. Uh, we, hear about his, we hear about a man named Nabonidus, I think is how you pronounce it. Or is it? Oh, Nabonidus. Nabonidus, that sounds better to me. Nab Na that's probably correct. Nabonidus we hear about, but we, we, we don't hear anything about this guy, Belshazzar, who is throwing this feast. If you remember the story, this is the guy who's throwing this banquet in front of a thousand people on the very night that Babylon is about to be taken uh, and uh, destroyed, really. He's, he's, it's the end of his own life. And um, in the year 1854... They found four cylinders that had been written uh, from the time period by this guy, Nabonidus, and his, whoever he had write his histories. They found four cylinders that are now in the British Museum. And in that, uh, it begins by saying part of the excerpt says, I am Nabonidus, king of Babylon. And he goes on and speaks about the gods of Babylon. And later in this, in this reading, he says, um, as for me, uh, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sin. He's talking to his his Babylonian gods, against your great divinity, and give me life until distant days. And as for Belshazzar, my firstborn son, my own child, let the fear of your great divinity be in his heart, and may he commit no sin, may he enjoy happiness in life. So the first time we ever found Belshazzar outside the Bible was in the 1850s. 
Well, up until then, Christians were easily made fun of for believing in this story. There is no Belshazzar. What are you talking about? King of Babylon, Belshazzar? We don't have a record of him anywhere, not a clue. Well, the Bible has a tendency, if you give it enough time, to prove its detractors wrong. And what happens over and over is archaeology constantly confirms what the Bible says. Even though no one outside of the Bible could have ever known this guy existed until the 1850s, we found it. And we actually find out from the history of the time that Nabonidus actually left for a 10-year period. And while he was gone, his son was, guess what? The interim king while he was gone. And that's when the events take place in this very chapter. So the history of Babylon and the biblical history actually match up, but you would not have known that until, uh, you know, relatively recently so far as history goes. So I cannot tell you how many things have been discovered in the last 200 years that give confirmation to what Scripture teaches, but uh, we have very, very, very good reason for, for trusting Scripture, even when it comes to these stories that have the miraculous elements within them. Thoughts on that? Well, it also, uh, if you've read through Daniel chapter 5, you know, towards the end, we're skipping way ahead here, when Daniel, you know, interprets the dream, so on and so forth, he's made third in the kingdom. You might say, why would he be made third? Typically, you're made second if you've got the king and then you. Well, if Belshazzar is ruling in place of Nabonidus, you've got Nabonidus number one, Belshazzar number two, then Daniel logically would be, he couldn't be any higher than three. Um, and so I think what you said puts that in a much clearer perspective. That Why third? Well, that's why, because there was two above him. Yes, and it's interesting that, remember Joseph interprets dreams for Pharaoh, and remember he is placed in number two position. Because at the time, there was only one person leading the country. It was Pharaoh himself. So he puts Joseph in second in command to himself. So Joseph was number two. Daniel would have been number two had, had Belshazzar been the only one reigning. But his father and he were both reigning. And so that's why three times in the chapter, we're told that Daniel would become third ruler in the, king, the, the third ruler in the kingdom at the time. All right, let's go ahead and jump in here. Um, Scott, can you read for us the first, uh, let's do the first 12 verses. First 12 verses, okay. Daniel chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple." And have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. 
One more technical point before we really jump in here is uh, you keep hearing him, be, you keep hearing Belshazzar being called the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar being called his father. That may sound like their direct father and son, the way we would think of it today. In the ancient language, though, there was no word for grandfather or great-grandfather, so you just use the word father. This is why first verse of the New Testament says that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Nobody thinks that that means the direct immediate son of Abraham or David is Jesus. He is a descendant, and so you, you call that person your father. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is likely further back in his family line, and it may simply mean he's simply a predecessor. Uh, the word father and son could be used to refer to the throne, to someone who comes before and someone who comes after in the throne, but it does not have to mean that they are direct father and son in a literal biological sense. Let's go ahead and jump into the first verse. Let me reread that. Verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, out of the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lord, his wives, his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone." It's got some opening comments about this party. Yeah, well, one of the things I'd say before we even get to the party is sort of tying in with what we were saying at the beginning, how sort of the Bible will disprove the detractors. Uh, the, the Bible is precious. We, we often talk about this. The Bible is the Word of God. It's, it's a treasure. It's the most valuable treasure that we possess. And I remember, Mark, talking to you when I was working on a sermon, I think on Acts 16, and you, you said to me, the Bible is endlessly fascinating and compelling, I think is what you said. Now, not every chapter is as interesting and compelling as, as each are, but this chapter, I mean, just really the whole book of Daniel, I think all of us, and Fred would say the same, has been so fun to study. It's just been it's so much there that you, you know this story. Maybe since you were a kid. I mean, I'm familiar with these stories since I was a kid. But then studying this, like, it has just brought so much. And just this chapter on the surface, like, just to read it on the surface for the first time, I think people would be like, wow. I mean, it just starts sort of innocently enough. And all of a sudden, the writing on the wall, the king's knocking together his knees. And, like, just the way it builds and builds and builds. And to the end, it's just like, tonight, your soul is required of you, essentially. I mean, what a fascinating chapter that we have today. But I just... I was listening to a Sproul Q&A where he was saying, they asked Sproul, uh, is, it, is it enough to read my Bible twice a week or something like that? And he just said no, and like he didn't say anything else. And then they, like, they pushed him to answer more, and he just said, if we would just spend, he said, 30 minutes a week studying the Bible, like we'd be so far past most of the average Christian. So it's just an encouragement for us all to, let's just take time to study the Bible. It's so compelling. The more you dive in, I think this chapter speaks to that. But one of the things that at, the, at the beginning here is they're drinking wine, and people think that he was drinking the wine and sort of began to loosen up, essentially, the inhibitions drop. I think that's what Ferguson said. And then he calls for the, these, you know, sacred vessels to come. And Ferguson said, had he been sober, he never would have done this. He never would have called the, the, to get these vessels in. I mean, he's just, now he's just losing control of everything. But James Boyce has made the point that sin is not static. Like, sin doesn't just stop. It doesn't, it, 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 it leads downhill is what he said. The path of sin always leads downhill. And he said it makes us impervious to danger. Another guy said, every sin paves the way for deeper and greater sin. I mean, just how true, true is that? We just may think, oh, I'll just give into this one little sin. But no, this, this sin is going to pave the way for deeper and greater sin. It just wants to keep going down this hill. And I think this story just is certainly illustrative of the fact that this sin just led, the, led him way, way downhill. And so we need to fight sin at the beginning because it is not static. I'd like to give a little historical context, too. At, at this point... Babylon was at war with the Medes and the Persians. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's likely that the city was surrounded uh, under siege. And now, 
you know, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar built it to be virtually an impregnable fortress. Like the, the wall was incredibly thick, super high. It was a huge city. They likely had years of reserves of food in it. And so Belshazzar is thinking, you know what? They can't get in. They can't starve us out. So let's just have a party. I'm completely oblivious to the fact that there is an army outside of the gates wanting to come in. And that's exactly what we see ends up happening. They, they manage to do something with the river where they, they dam it up so that, you know, it's um, where, where before they would have been crossing like waist high water and sludge. It like goes like way down. They do some, the Persians, Medes and Persians do some trick which enabled them to get into the city in a way the Babylonians thought could never happen. Um, and so again, he's just, he is at ease, as they say, at ease in Zion. Um, thinking he is safe, secure from all harm, from all alarm, and he can just have a big party, um, and we see the folly in that. And just speaking specifically of alcohol and drunkenness, since that's such an obvious part of this chapter, you don't have to turn to this cross-reference, but in, in Ephesians 5, you'll, you'll remember, this is right near where Scott was preaching a couple weeks ago, but listen, listen to the uh, text here from Ephesians 5. So Scott's sermon text said, uh, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, here's the part. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But you see here the contrast. Drunkenness is so often used in this world to try to forget your misery. That's why it is attractive. It's supposed to be something that sort of takes you out of the misery of the moment. You've got all these anxieties and cares and concerns. Maybe you've got discouragement. Maybe you've got depression. You don't want to think about reality, and so you want to get your mind off of reality. So often the entertainment industry, whether for good or bad, is often trying to get our minds off reality. We want to focus on something else and just sort of get, get out of that moment. And so the alcohol, no doubt, was meant, among other things, to try to deaden the, the fear and all that was going on around him. He, he's, he's getting drunk to forget what's happening. Paul says the opposite of drunkenness is being filled with the Spirit, which is not being drunk in the Spirit, as some people say, where you lose control of yourself in the Spirit. No, the, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not self-abandonment or lo loss of your control. So Paul says the opposite of drunkenness is being filled with the Spirit and doing what? Reminding each other of what is true. You say, where is that in the passage? Singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks for everything in the name of the Lord. In other words, we are singing the truth to ourselves. We are speaking the truth to one another, filled with the Spirit, reminding ourselves of what is true. So the world's way of dealing with the pain is to forget about it, to, to get your mind off reality, get, have a drunken party and forget all the fears and cares of your life. The Bible's solution to concern and worry and fear and anxiety is what? Not to forget reality, but to be reminded of what is actually real. That God loves you, that He cares for you, that He has a plan for you, that He's working all things for your good, that we can cast our cares on Him because He cares for us, that we can humble ourselves under His mighty hand, that He might lift us up in due time. The, the Bible says the reason why we have fear and anxiety is not because we're forgetting reality, it's because we're, it's, it's because we're forgetting reality, not because we are, we are doing anything other than that. So when we think about this, this, uh, this passage in Daniel, uh, we need to think about this, the, the Holy Spirit as being the solution, not uh, Belshazzar's uh, false solution.
Yeah, one other thing I would say, which ties in with sort of what Greg was saying, like they, he thought he was secure, even though this army is sneaking in, he thinks they're fine, they got all this food. And I think it was Ian Duguid, who's his commentary is so good, like, like you said, Mark, this week, but he, was, he said that he was feasting on the brink of the grave, celebrating basically on the edge of eternity. Here's this guy celebrating on the edge of eternity, and this, that's the sobering thing about his life. I think it was Ferguson who said his life is a warning. I mean, it's, it's just this powerful warning for, for everybody. But it, James Boyce talked about how it, it relates to our culture. Our culture is so much like Belshazzar, like just sort of celebrating on the edge of eternity, not thinking about eternal things. And, and this is what he said. It's just, this was years ago, 1989, I think he wrote his commentary, but it's so true today as well. He said, by refusing to think, especially about eternal realities, and by filling our days with entertainment, particularly sin-oriented entertainment, we lose sight of danger and plunge into the abyss. I just thought, how true is this of the culture in which we live? I remember one day, this was years ago at, at, the, at my job, there were people who were talking about like how horrible a way to die this way or this way or this way. They're just talking about all these horrible ways to die. I would not want to die all these ways. Somebody just said, you know, I want to die in my sleep. And the whole time they were talking about this, I just wanted to scream out, it doesn't matter how you die. It matters where you go after you die. I mean, that's the big thing. It's like the eternal aspect. It's just missing in our culture. I mean, we should have compassion on people who are just sort of just not even thinking about these things, blind to these things. It should give us a love for people who really are like Ben Belshazzar's case, where we don't know when, when their souls will be required of them, and we should have a compassion, compassion for them, praying for them, and, and wanting to see them come to, to saving faith because of the danger in which they are in. I remember John Piper mentioning years ago, he said, uh, think about this, in, in any hospice situation or in a hospital where someone really is on the verge of dying, we have the TV on. Like, just think about that. So, a non-Christian grandparent, grandfather, is laying in a hospital bed on the verge of death. Maybe they're under hospice care, whatever it may be. And what are they looking at for the next couple of days right before they die? They're watching daytime television. Like, the, the, and I'm not trying to be cruel to that person, but the absolute insanity of how we view eternity. We want to be amused and entertained right up until the last second we are on the earth. So give me my phone, give me social media, give me the news, give me the TV show, give me the movie, give me Netflix, give me whatever it is, Amazon Prime, just let me veg until I am gone. And there's not even a thought of facing God, eternal judgment, whether I'm ready to meet God, where I'm going to be five minutes after I die, five seconds after I die. There's just no thought of that. Um, you know, you, you see interviews where like Larry King would always, do you guys remember Larry King, CNN, Larry King Live? Um, now, he, he just passed away not that long ago, but Larry King would ask his guests over and over. I've seen so many clips where he asked the guests, what do you think happens after you die? Uh, and he, you can look him up on YouTube where you ask, he'll say, I'm scared of dying. I don't know what's going to happen. And they'll have these interviews. They'll go back and forth. But inevitably, he was intrigued by the subject, but he never wanted to actually embrace Christ. He would always resist whenever Jesus came up in those conversations. He did not want to go there. But we need to seriously consider what place entertainment should have in our life. It's legitimate if it's not sinful entertainment, and it's in the right place in our life. But my goodness, uh, there was a book written, uh, you know, a few decades ago, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I think uh, appropriately describes much of what we see in our culture. Thinking on that, um, and I think this is related, you know, also they're, they're drinking in this feast from, from the, the cups, the, the vessels of gold and silver that were in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, utensils, vessels that had been devoted to God, dedicated to to, you know, to use in the temple and for no other use. These are holy vessels, if you will, um, and they are cavalierly, recklessly using these things that had a very specific and special purpose. Um, and, I, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say, like, uh, to apply this to us, that 
whatever is devoted to God, we need to be very careful with it. And you look at the New Testament, and it's not that objects are holy, it's we are. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. As the whole body together and as individuals, we are God's dwelling place. And so what we do with our bodies, what we do with our minds, what we do with our lives matters. We do not want to use these holy vessels in ways that dishonor God. We live in a society and there's a lot of common thinking in the church that separates the body and the soul such that it's almost a Gnostic view that, you know, I, you know, if my spirit's okay, my body's don't matter what I do with my body. No, God made us to be body and soul. And so what we do with our bodies matters. I mean, our, if, we're, if you're a believer, you've been set apart, all of you, to God. And we don't have the freedom to misuse God's temple any way we choose. I mean, Paul rebukes the Corinthians, you know, for, for prostitution, you know, and sleeping with prostitutes. And he's like, am I going to join Christ to a prostitute? I mean, what we do with ourselves, it matters. And that's not being, you know, old fuddy-duddy from the 1950s or 60s. That's being biblical. Like, we should care what we do with our bodies and what we fill our minds with and what we do with our time. Um, you know, Belshazzar and his wives and his guests, they knew these vessels were devoted to the Lord and they just carelessly said, well, we're just going to party with them. And it's like, do not misuse for your own purposes what God has set apart for his purposes. You think about how the quickly things unravel in these situations. The, mm. the other famous drunken party in the Bible, there's probably a few, but one of them is Herod's famous party where John the Baptist is in his prison. He has, I guess, uh, what was it? Is, is his nephew or whatever? Or is, 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 it's a really sick story, but is, is the, the girl that he's related to comes in and she dances probably in an inappropriate way. That Everyone there is, is intoxicated. And he says, listen, I'll give you, uh, girl, I'll give you whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. She goes and talks to her mom. Her mom says, I want John's, John the Baptist his head on a platter. Well, at that point, again, he was in this awkward position where he was kind of forced into it. Well, he wasn't forced, but he forced himself into a place where he ended up doing that crazy thing. But in these different party scenes, you have people making crazy rash decisions that are absolutely, truly blasphemous against God because in both cases, it seems as though alcohol has played a factor in the decisions that are being made. So all, all the more reason to be careful about those things. Well, let's, let's look further here. So they praise the false gods in verse 4. You'll notice that the qualities of these gods in verse 4, gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, a lot of those qualities made up that statue in the previous chapter. Remember in chapter 2, the gold, silver, bronze, iron, and so um, they are praising the false gods that cannot actually save. And all of a sudden, there's this finger, these human, this human hand writing uh, on the plaster on the wall, this strange uh, phrase, mene, mene, tekel, parson, which everyone is perplexed about. He calls in all of his... Um, all of his uh, so-called wise men, his enchanters and so forth, to interpret it. They cannot interpret the, uh, the writing on the wall. Everyone is terrified. We're told the king's thoughts in verse 6, it says it, his, his color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And so he is terrified by what he sees. And then no one can answer what's wrong. So the queen, and this is, this is very possibly the queen mother, this could be actually his own mother, uh, comes in and tells him about Daniel, and they present Daniel before uh, him to interpret the dream. So let's, any, any comments before we pick up with the next part? Um, I mean, I, I want to, I think we need to at least briefly mention how the queen mother, like, she, she's, mothers can do stuff that nobody else can get away with. <laughs> 
Uh, moms just they they can come in, they can interrupt, they can say things because they're moms and they can do that. The the queen mother, I mean, she she literally is rebuking and embarrassing Belshazzar in front of his thousand friends. Um, because, I mean, the way she talks about Daniel and the way she talks about Nebuchadnezzar, she references him there in verse 4. In the days of your father, speaking of Daniel, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him this because these things. Um, it's like she, she remembered um, what God had done in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. She remembered um, Daniel and how God had been working through Daniel. And I think based on what we see, Belshazzar had a knowledge of this. And for whatever reason, Daniel just wasn't on his radar. But the queen comes in and, I mean, the king already, by the way he responded, you know, it, it's possible like he soiled himself, he was so scared. Like, you know, he was so freaked out, like he messed his pants, literally is one, one way you could think of that. And she's like, well, guess what? Um, I got somebody who can help you, messy man. Um, I mean, like she's talking down to him. Um, and so anyway, we'll, it makes sense more when we get into it. Okay, verse 13, we'll pick up here. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken, uh, taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. And his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Now, we'll save the last part for a moment from now. But um, on this particular part, um, this is all about pride and humility once again. So thoughts on his rebuke to the king? Yeah, well, why did we just say that at the beginning, uh, one thing just interesting about verse 12 where he, they says, it says, uh, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams was in him. But uh, Kevin Young just made this point just before we jump to that next part. Uh, he said, uh, 
we're not going to do all the things that Daniel did. Likely, we're not going to be promoted to this kind of position that Daniel did. But, he, but the young man made this good point. He just said, may it be said of us that we are men and women who are marked with an excellent spirit. This means Daniel was faithful. He told the truth. He served with integrity. This was a man you wanted to keep around. So, I mean, even if we work for non-Christians, I hope they will say of us that we are men and women of, an integ- of integrity, that we're honest, that we're hardworking, we're working to God. So we should emulate Daniel in, in that sense. And then one of the things that strikes me about Belshazzar uh, is his pride here. Like Alistair Beck talked about that in 13 and 14. Like he's just talking down to Daniel. Oh, you're just one of those exiles. And here he is. He just maybe just wet himself. And he's still, he's still filled with pride. It's just, it's mind blowing that he's still so proud at this moment. Just sort of just, and he's, his mom has told him all these wonderful things about Daniel. And he's just like, oh, you're one of the exiles. He just talks down to him. And just the, the folly of pride there. Uh, and then Daniel though, I love how he offers him this purple cloak and everything. And he's just like, I don't want, I don't want you can save your purple cloak. I was thinking about Fred. Maybe Fred would have wanted the purple cloak. If he, if he, <laughs> <laughs> there in the place, but he doesn't even, he just doesn't want it. He's like, you can have it. Like he's maybe in his eighties, I think is what Beg said. He just said, he doesn't need this. But then Daniel, like, I think Greg, you talked about Daniel has boldness. It just, he just like lets him have it in these, he doesn't get to the interpretation of these words. He just lets him have it in these next verses. It's just a powerful, uh, he just bold, uh, and just lets him have it. Well, I think, I think drawing on that, we would want to say, <clears throat> don't be afraid to offend rulers as we speak the truth to them. Um, I mean, again, we want to be humble. Uh, we want to, you know, be clear. We, we don't want to be arrogant or prideful. But Daniel, he, yeah, he, he lets him have it. I mean, he just speaks the truth. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things we read the Bible. We have to remember it's talking about real people. Um, the queen comes in, embarrasses Belshazzar, Belshazzar is going to try to reclaim some dignity by the way he addresses Daniel, like you said, just one of those exiles. And then Daniel is like, he's not, I don't think he's in a game of one-upmanship, but it's almost like you, you really want to go there. Okay, I'll tell you, let, let, me, let me tell you about what God did through Nebuchadnezzar. And the, the implication in this is God hasn't done any of this for Belshazzar. None of it. What does he say? Uh, Look at verse 18. God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. He hadn't given that to you, Belshazzar. You inherited it. You got it from somebody else. It's not yours. It was theirs. Uh, Because of the greatness, he gave him peoples, nations, languages, trembled and feared before him. Belshazzar's kingdom surrounded by another army. And so you start to go through this. Daniel, in in speaking the truth, he is at... He's absolutely humbling Belshazzar and reminding Belshazzar and all the people there, um, you're nothing like Nebuchadnezzar was. Yeah, you might be, you know, in succession in the kingdom, but you're nothing like he is. Why? Because God hasn't made you anything. God made Nebuchadnezzar this way, but he has not made you that way. And even though you're not like Nebuchadnezzar, you presume to act like you're as good as he was. You presume to act like you can do whatever you want to. And in fact, as he ends there in verse 23, um, you haven't honored the God in whose hand is your breath. And so, I mean, yeah, like before Daniel even gets to interpreting the dream, it's like you you need to know who you are and you need to know who God is. Um, And and it's just a very humbling, humbling thing. And I think we can take from this again, we want to be humble. We want to be gracious, but we should never shy away from speaking the truth boldly. I mean, we don't want to be jerks, um, but Daniel, the, I, I, 
we, we have to imagine his tone. I don't know. He's got to be risking his life by yeah. what he says right here to the king. But, I mean, he's not pulling any punches right now. He's not pulling a single punch. He just stood toe-to-toe and defied the king of Babylon. And he, he spoke truth. He, he, his goal was to speak truth, but he didn't back off an inch. Um, and, you know, as Christians, we, we can't be afraid of what the truth might do to those we speak it to. We've got to make sure we speak the truth. Yeah, and if, if, you, if you hold your spot, try to find 2 Chronicles 26 to your left. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Once you get there, this story might actually be more familiar than you might think, but this is the story of Uzziah. I'm just going to mention it briefly. Uzziah is the famous king mentioned in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord uh, seated uh, high and lifted up. So this is just, I'm just going to read a few verses of his reign, which was mostly good. He reigned for 52 years. Look at uh, 2 Chronicles 26, verse 3. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Now, just, just look at that. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Then look at verse 8. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. So this is a great king. He was one of the best kings in Israel's history uh, in many ways for much of his reign. But then there's this tragic turning point in the story. Look at verse um, 15. In Jerusalem, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. So he had all these accomplishments. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. That sentence at the beginning of verse 16 is one of the most frightening sentences in all of the Bible. When he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. This is one of the tragic stories of someone who so faithfully served the Lord for what? 30, 40 years. I mean, this guy was faithful to the Lord for decades and was greatly honored by the Lord and exalted by the Lord, given all this fame and power and wealth, all this prestige, all this skill and all this craftsmanship he was able to have done in Jerusalem. He was so successful. And yet it was his very success that led to his downfall. And Belshazzar has none of the early part, none of the early part of his life where he was faithful, but he just has all the negative aspects. But even for us as believers, if the Lord gifts us, if the Lord uses us in various ways, if the Lord has given us ability at work, ability at home, if he's given us wonderful children, 
children or a wonderful family or a wonderful job or a wonderful career, whatever it may be, let us be so aware that we not fall into the sin of pride like Belshazzar did, like Nebuchadnezzar, like Uzziah did, that when we are strong, that we not grow proud to our own destruction, that even when things are going well, that we say this is all owing to the Lord. The Lord has given prosperity and the Lord also gives adversity. And whether it's a sunny day or a rainy day, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to thank the Lord. But my goodness, I think the, 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 the test that is most often failed in the Bible is not the test of trials and adversity. I think the test that is most often failed is the test of prosperity. Solomon failed the test of prosperity. David failed the test of prosperity. It is Uzziah who failed the test of prosperity. So we, we thank the Lord when blessings come our way, but we must remember where the blessings have their source in. The source is in God and His unmerited kindness, not in the fact that we are smarter or wiser or cleverer or better at whatever it is we are doing. So that, that's one of the big pride humility lessons that runs throughout the whole of the Bible. You know, it's interesting, real quick, uh, we don't have to linger there, but I can't remember specifically where it said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but as Israel was going into the land and God's giving them instruction, uh, he gives them a warning. He's basically like, beware lest at some point you start to think, my hand has mm -hmm. done all this that I have, uh, has accomplished all this for me, and you forget the Lord. I mean, mm -hmm. that is such a temptation when we have an abundance is we start to think, look at what I did. Mm -hmm. um, and we just always have to be careful of that. And one other thing, just back to Daniel chapter 5, verse 22, I think is so, so key, where Daniel says in Daniel 5, 22, he says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Mm -hmm. Like, you knew everything. And I think, Greg, you had something about we should learn from the lives of others or something yeah. on, on your sheet, which, again, this would be just a, we should learn from the lives of others, uh, just to study biography, Christian biography here. I just plugged that again because we can learn so much from the lives of others. But somebody just said, one pastor said, we should tell our children about God's dealings with us and our family, how God intervened in our lives, how God saved us. I think that's just a wonderful practical thing to, 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 to do, pass on this information. I mean, I'm just thinking about our son to be able to talk about how God intervened in my dad's life, like powerfully, dramatically, and just tell him this, tell him all these stories, uh, just in order to hopefully strengthen him one day. But another guy just said, having clear information does not guarantee the right response. Mm. And it's just so true. Like, it's a tragic thing to have people grow up in the church and they have right doctrine. They, they understand uh, about heaven and hell. They sing songs like honoring Jesus. They learn the gospel, hear about judgment and eternity, and then they walk away from it all or to remain apathetic to it all. So right doctrine and teaching doesn't necessarily generate a right response. So you think of Christians or people who proclaim Christ maybe at a young age, people we've grown up with. I mean, I think of how many people that I grew up with at church who are not walking with Jesus now, even though they had all this right doctrine and teaching. But then also for us as Christians, I think one, one thing would be like this. How often can we hear a sermon? This is like Jerry Bridges talked about this. We can hear a sermon, hear right doctrine, and we can even say amen to it, at least amen in our hearts. But he said we can walk away unchanged by what we hear. We, just, we say amen to it, but really it has no, no impact on us. And one commentator just made this, this helpful point. He said, uh, let's see where he says it. He says, if I can find where he said it. We must plead that the Spirit of God will cause the Word of God to be obedience-producing and life-transforming. For when truth does not humble us or lead us to worship, we are simply Belshazzar clones. I mean, how true is that? We can hear sermons and say amen, and yet we can walk away unchanged. So we should be pleading with God when we receive right teaching, that it would produce the, the right results. It would lead us to humility. It would lead us to praise God. It would lead to obedience in our lives. Because so often we can just walk away unchanged even though we've had right, right teaching. So just That's more application. Point. All right, let, let's read the last section here of the chapter. Starting in Daniel 5.24. Then from his presence the hand was sent. And this is Daniel again talking to Belshazzar. Then from his presence, from God's presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. 
And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, which sounds like the word for numbered in the original language, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. If I, if I could get you to turn one more time here uh, to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 12. Turn with me to Luke, chapter 12, for a parable Jesus told that we don't talk about this parable maybe as much as we could, but Daniel chapter 12, the parable of the rich fool is very similar to Belshazzar's end of his life here. Let me just read it briefly. Uh, Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he, was th and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But you see here, fool, tonight your soul is required of you. I mean, Belshazzar's in the midst of this feast. He's clothing Daniel in the purple robe, putting the gold chain on him. He's sitting there going, you know, he's having this moment. And in that very moment, that same night, uh, what we learned from history is that they were diverting the river that ran through Babylon at the time. They were diverting the river enough so that they could actually get underneath the aqueduct, basically get into the, where the water flowed. And they could get it, the water got all the way down to the height of a man's thigh. So the soldiers get through the water supply. The gates of the water had not yet been fully closed up. The, the soldiers come through. They get up into the city unseen. And they find their way into the king where the king is, and they put the king to death that very night. And we're actually told from secular history that he was throwing a feast on this very same night. It's amazing how the Bible and secular history line up yet again on this story. But on that very night, the soldiers were creeping in while he was throwing this party for Daniel. Yeah, I mean, just it's that verse 30 again is that's what haunts us is that phrase like tonight, like that very night. I mean, it's just, it makes it like I think Ferguson said Belshazzar is perhaps the supreme Old Testament parallel to the rich fool in Jesus' parable. I mean, it's exactly so, so similar to, the, to Luke 12 to this passage. But it's sort of like any, anyone, any one of us, it could be our last night technically on the earth. But it, again, quoting Alistair Begg, he said, It remains true that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming at the door of this world just as the Persians were at the gates of Belshazzar's city. The writing is on the wall. God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So Jesus could return at any moment. But then I was thinking it could be our nights individually as well. Like I was thinking about Bob Saget, the comedian who, who wrote, like he tweeted out a few hours before his death, like how much he was enjoying touring again. And then he goes to his hotel room. He apparently he, he lost consciousness in the bathroom, hit his head, and he stumbled to the, to the bed. And he died in the middle of the night. That, that, that was his night where he had to stand. Like uh, Beg would say, you have an appointment with the Most High God. And Ian Duguid at the end of his chapter was so powerful in this. Like when we stand before God, are our lives going to be weighed in the balances and found wanting? Like are we going to stand before God and just not going to make it? But then he talked about Jesus. He said, Jesus, when Jesus' life was weighed in God's balance, it was found to be perfect 
and complete, able to satisfy fully the demands of God's holiness for all those who come to God through him. And he said, his great banquet awaits us in the future at the end of time. On that day, in place of Belshazzar's nobles, there will be thousands upon thousands of Christ's saints in attendance upon him, all those who have washed their robes and made them clean in the blood of the Lamb. I just thought, you know, Jesus lived this perfect life, and now he is weighed, and he is not found wanting at all. And all who trust in him, we can be covered in in, in the blood of Jesus. And when that happens, I think Boyce said that the scales swing back immediately, like in our favor, because we have Christ's righteousness. So it's just a beautiful gospel presentation that he pulled out of it when we think about that weighed in the balance and found wanting. Scott, can you close us Sure. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for this chance to study your word. Uh, what, what fun it's been for, for all of us who've been able to, to lead on the panel to study Daniel. It's been such a, a treat to, to be able to dive into it. I, I do pray that we would, uh, just all of us would uh, delight to, to study your word, to, to spend time actually digging in and studying it because it is a treasure that we possess. And I do pray that we would be men and women of the word. Uh, I pray that you would guard us from pride. Uh, What a a subtle and dangerous sin it is. Uh, So when when you do give us sunny days, Father, help us to be humble. Help us to remember that these blessings come from your hand and and help us uh, to remember that you you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We want to be humble uh, men and women uh, and help us to live in light of the gospel and in light of eternity, not to amuse ourselves to death. Help us to be careful with what we consume and what we put before our eyes. Help us to have compassion for those that we work with who just really are, like Belshazzar, celebrating sort of on the edge of eternity, impervious to the danger that they are in, and and help us to be compassionate towards them, to pray for them, and to use opportunities to share the gospel with them. We pray for the service upcoming, that you'd be at work uh, through the singing, through the teaching, and that we'd be transformed uh, by your word and by uh, the teaching from Mark and, and both Greg. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be covering uh, the famous lion's den story. So I look forward to doing that. Thank you.